0: quick note before we get into the episode in this conversation recorded in late may justin drake predicts that the merge will come in august since then ethereum co-founder vitalik buterin raised the possibility that developers may need more time potentially pushing the merge back to september or october Welcome back to another edition of the Round the Block podcast from Coinbase. I'm your host, Justin Mart. This week, we're diving into one of my favorite topics of conversation. We're talking about proof of stake and specifically Ethereum's migration from proof of work onto proof of stake. Quite honestly, this is a topic that a lot of people are very excited about. And for good reason, there are very significant implications behind what's gonna happen to Ethereum when it moves from proof of work onto proof of stake. With me today, I have Justin Drake, He is a researcher for the Ethereum Foundation on all things proof of stake. And we're going to get into why Ethereum is making the move, the pros and the cons, and again, all those really interesting implications. Let's jump in. The world needs to know that I'm mad at you, right? And I'm mad at you because you stole Justin.eth, the ENS name that I wanted to take forever. And so I really just wanted you to come on here and shake my fist at you and then see maybe if you'd sell it to me. (laughs)
1: haha it's not for sale but it was a perfectly fair auction
0: okay well i'm really sad that it's not for sale uh that's actually the one thing that i wanted to take away from this but now that you're ripping my heart out i guess i'll have to just have a consolation prize of chatting about eth2 and the merge and all the exciting developments in ether so on that front (laughs) great to have you on and thanks for coming on
1: yeah thanks for having me
0: for most of our listeners though this is a pretty complicated topic and i would love to just kind of break it down from first principles and talk at a high level about what's actually happening with ethereum so the context here is: Look, from the early, early days, Ethereum started as a proof of work system, and has always had a commitment to move to proof of stake. But I wanted to ask you, why, why even try to move to proof of stake in the first place? Like, what is the what what is the benefits of moving to proof of stake? Why is Ethereum committed to this roadmap?
1: Right. So there's there's several benefits. Um, one of the kind of obvious benefits is that um, moving to proof of stake uses a lot less energy. Um, and you know, being eco-friendly, I guess, is is one is one of the the upsides. Especially if Ethereum is going to become this global settlement um, platform for for the internet, um, we will be burning a lot of of energy. Mm-hmm. I guess another um, efficiency point is um, economic. So, in order to pay for all this um, burning of of energy, we need to have a lot of issuance. And it's on the order of 13,500 ETH every single day, uh, which is a lot of ETH. In percentage terms, what is that? Percentage of the whole supply. Yeah.
0: I guess y- yearly inflation, like what does that boil down to?
1: So um, yearly, that's about 5 million ETH um, and there's uh, 120 million ETH right now. So it's like just a little bit under, under 5%. Yeah, yeah, four and a half-ish percent, yeah. So that's, that's a burden that every
0: ETH holder bears because the Ethereum network is printing new ether. Distributing it to the miners today, it's proof of work. Tomorrow, it's proof of stake. But that is a large inflationary burden on the ecosystem. That I mean, if it doesn't change, that's going to be in perpetuity. So proof of stake ostensibly changes that.
1: Exactly. So right now, the the beacon chain, which is the proof of stake chain, which is running in parallel to the proof of work chain, is issuing only 1,500. So um, that's that's about you know 10x less than um than, than, than
0: proof of work so immediate 10x reduction in inflation and you mentioned the beacon chain we'll get into what that is like and, and the actual relationship between these in a bit here yeah okay so we have an uh, an energy consideration yeah and we have a inflation slash economic consideration yes
1: and then the final one and maybe one of the most important ones is a security consideration mm-hmm. and there's kind of two improvements here from a security standpoint one is um quantitative um and the way that we measure security is something called economic security, which is how much economic resources do you need to go spend to go break consensus? Yeah. And in the context of proof of work, basically it's how much hardware do you need to go out there and buy to perform a 51% attack? Um, and it's on the order of $10 billion. For proof of work? For proof of is work. Is this for Bitcoin specifically or for Ethereum? For both, roughly the same, okay. yeah.
0: It's quite a lot. That's also hardware. It's like going out there buying specific computers. You have to go get a hardware, set them all up, like do all the you know actual operations work to get the thing up and running, and then you can attempt to fifty-one percent attack a proof of work network. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's correct. Um, I mean, there might also be kind of um, advantages to being a, an attacker in the context of proof of work. You know, you you, you might have discounts if you manufacture a lot of hardware, kind of economies of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, that's the ballpark, you know, $10 billion to go attack these systems, which, you know, it might sound like a huge number, but in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's nothing. It's peanuts, especially yeah. for um, you know, a nation state, for example. And one of the goals that we have here is to build infrastructure that's going to last decades and decades, if not centuries, and is going to be robust um, to, you know, a- attackers who might be economically incentivized to go break these systems. And we want to be securing you know, tens of trillions of dollars. Um, you know, we want to be world war three resistant. That's kind of one of the, the goals that we have. Scary and dystopian, but I like the protection. All right. <laughs> and so really, I think we need to be at a point where we have at least a trillion dollars of economic security, if not multiple trillions, um, of economic security. Okay. So you mentioned that, you know, proof of work systems,
0: again, you throw out a number, $10 billion to 51% attack, a proof mm-hmm. of work system. Right. Can you explain exactly how proof of stake is different and why it creates better economic security?
1: Right. Um. So just empirically speaking, just uh, observing the amount of economic security today on the Beacon Chain, we have about um, $25 billion of of economic security. So we're spending 10 times less on issuance, and we have 2.5 times more economic security. So we have this efficiency advantage of a a proof of work of about 25x. And I guess the
0: the fundamental uh, kind of unlock here is that in proof of stake, the way you become a validator, the way you propose new blocks of transactions is by putting your Ether up, lock it, basically in Ethereum, and and that's locked there. And if you misbehave, it's taken away from you, right? So if you attempt a 51% attack, for example, well, your entire ETH that you've put up as a stake gets burned and taken away. So that's the economic security we're talking about. It's like, look, we have 20, you said $25 billion of ether locked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 25 billion, if, and if people, you know, want to misbehave and try to 51% attack, that represents twelve and a half billion to get 50%, right? Well, um, I'm just doing the math in my head. Yeah. What I'm assuming <laughs> is
1: that, um, like the, 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 the economic security that's available here right now is honest. And as a exogenous attacker, who wants to kind of overwhelm the system, you have oh. to match the existing 25 yeah. billion. Yep.
0: And you're putting it all up, and if you fail in your in your attack, that slash is burned entirely. The the famous quote here, right, is like, I think, did Vitalik popularize this one? But he basically, somebody said, you know, it's as if your ASIC farm burns to the ground. Your your proof of work in a mining rig farm, it burns to the ground if you try 51% attack. Right, so and that, that is the, 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 the
1: fundamental qualitative difference between proof of work and proof of stake. And that's kind of basically in the context of what we call an iterated game or a repeated game. So an attacker... In the context of proof of work, can try and break the system, and they can be successful indefinitely so long as they have more than 51% of the hash power. In the context of proof of stake, you do the attack once, you get slashed. And then the network kind of automatically heals and recovers. Yeah. Um, and so every time you do this attack, you have to lose millions and millions of ETH. And that that actually puts a bound on the number of times you can attack. So let's say it costs 10 million Eve to go do the attack, and there's only 120 million Eve. Then you know you can only do the attack 11 mm-hmm. times because you know 10 million ETH is already um, yeah. And we're
0: already to scale where again, who's going to attempt this at, you know, at such a high cost and mm-hmm. with not a certain? On we can go down the rabbit hole too of what would happen if they actually tried an attack and the ways in which it probably wouldn't work anyway, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, exactly. So it's it's very clearly it, the the other aspect of all this, right? Is like it's skin in the game the validators who are proposing blocks in a proof-of-stake system like Ethereum, they they hold tokens, they hold native assets. And so they're incentivized actually to see the growth of that asset, right? They're not incentivized to burn it down, to try to attack that network because the value of the assets goes down. And conversely speaking, um, it does mean the validators are incentivized to also act in the best interests of the network. In contrast to proof-of-work, where if you have a computer and you're mining Bitcoin, you might not care about Bitcoin at all. You could just be totally value extractionary and you might try to be, you know, try to 51% attack it if you want to because you don't have any skin in the game. All you have is a basically a computer. You don't own the native Bitcoin assets. Now, that's actually a bit of a simplification because honestly, miners in Bitcoin do own Bitcoin and
1: they are they're mostly skin in the game. But that, that's not a fundamental link, right? Right. So some of the professional miners try to hedge out the price risk of Bitcoin. And so they'll sell, for example, hash rate yeah. futures. And so net, they're not at all exposed to the, to the price of Bitcoin. Um, at least some of the really professional miners, you know, that mining at scale. Um, I, whereas, you, as you said, you know, on 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 with staking, you know, most most of the time, you know, these are you know, enthusiasts, people who believe in the network and who are exposed. But th- technically speaking, there is a way to extract the yield without um, being exposed to ETH. So one of the things you can do is you can basically be short Eve hmm. and long stake hmm. Okay. and then you collect the. the
0: the rewards that makes sense okay so there's a bit of a nuance we're actually already getting very deep down the rabbit hole this is again why i love love love, personally love this topic of conversation because there's so many nuances to it and it's a new design space like pre-bitcoin we never had any sort of research and design around consensus mechanisms proof of stake versus proof of work and so it's a new field that we collectively as a society are trying to work through and discover these trade-offs and implications and and how it's all going to bubble up into hopefully what is a very robust and secure environment moving forward I have a question. So we basically traced out some of the reasons why Ethereum is moving to proof of stake. I think they're very valid reasons, right? A lot of, lot, of, lot of good reasons to do it. What are the
1: downsides to it? What are the, what are the risks? What are the concerns? So one of the downsides is complexity. Um, and that comes with execution risk. So there's a higher chance of bugs, basically. Um, and there's also kind of more research and development time. And if you look, Historically, um, we've been wanting to go to proof of stake even before Ethereum launched, even before the genesis block. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. So this is something that you know Vitalik envisioned, um, and you know, it's been part of the roadmap. Oh, it was sense. part of the white paper
0: before development happened on Ethereum.
1: Yeah, um, ex- ex- exactly. Um, huh. Kind of going ahead and launching with proof of work was kind of a, a short-term compromise, you know, to just deliver something to try it out, but long term, the idea was always to move to proof of stake. Um, So yeah, it's been kind of seven years that we've been trying to to push this out. So there's complexity, a lot of complexity, that's more surface area for
0: bugs, more more ways to mess up the system complexity in general, in designs where you're trying to be economically secure and have billions of dollars flowing through a system. Complexity is really something you want to fight against, but it's a necessary compromise in this case to gain the upsides and the benefits. Any other sort
1: of significant trade offs? I mean, on the point of complexity, one of the things I want to highlight is that one way to hedge to buy insurance against complexity is to have what's called client diversity. So instead of having one implementation of proof of stake, we have five production-grade implementation. And so if one of them is buggy and faulty, that actually doesn't take down the network. Hmm. Is it a little bit like, um, I'm trying to think of the right analogy for this, right? But like you have five different
0: cars that could take you to the, to the destination. And if one breaks down, you can grab another one. Like what's a simple, a
1: simple analogy for client diversity? Yeah, maybe like um, a, a multi-engine helicopter, right? If you have a single engine helicopter mm-hmm. and that engine blows down, you're dead. Yeah. Uh, but if you have a backup engine, um, then you have the redundancy. And building on that
0: analogy, each engine in the helicopter is built from a different company using a different manufacturing process with different tech stacks. So there's no single error across all engines, right?
1: Exactly. These are all independent teams funded by different entities, written in different languages, uh, from people in different, you know, countries.
0: One of the main questions here is around, okay, well, the composition of validators on Ethereum, like, would they be concentrated to a degree where power or control of the chain rests in a small number of hands? And the way this would occur is if we had a few really large whale validators, right? People that, people that represented a ton of Ethereum, staked Ethereum, and they therefore have a lot of voting power on a proof of stake network. It would be akin to mining farms in Bitcoin, right? You have a big mining farm and you control a bunch of hash rate. Well, that's you, you control a decent percentage of that network. So that's kind of the scenario we're, we're thinking about in our heads here. And obviously we want to limit or mitigate the emergence of super large whale validators because that represents a, a bit of centralization risk. If you are a whale validator and you represent a ton of Ethereum that's staked on the network and your validator has a bug or it goes down, or maybe you turn malicious or whatever it is, right? And you stake incorrectly. Well, at that moment we had the network just sees a lot of Ethereum validators did something wrong and it will penalize you based on how many people, how much stake did something wrong at that moment in time, right? And so if a lot of people, yeah, so if you're a big whale validator and you screw up, well, it's much more penalizing than if you are just a tiny validator and you mess up because there's not it's not correlated with anybody else. Did right. I get that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. So there's different types of failure. So one is, um, you know, you can be inconsistent with yourself in the voting and that leads to to, to slashing. And as you said, the more people are inconsistent with themselves, um, the higher the penalty. Another type of failure is a liveness failure. So for example, if the, the finality gadget um stops progressing then we have this leak uh, mechanism and the longer we've been uh, unfinalized the 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 greater the the leak and then in the context of um delegation for example like Lido there's correlated failure in all the small contract infrastructure mm-hmm. um that is that is behind Lido and there's for example governance risk so Lido has a a token the LDO token mm-hmm. and um you know, it's only on the order of $2 billion of market cap. But if you can go get a significant chunk of LDO tokens, you can compromise on the order of $10 billion um, of of Mm. of ETH. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it kind of goes down to how complicated this rabbit hole goes. (laughs) It's funny because you can dabble your toes in this and like understand the rough cuts of it if you like look at it for a decent amount of time, but to become an expert in it and know all these nuanced details I'm st- I'm constantly struck, by the way, at just how challenging it is to create a system that's economically secure from all possible forms of attack. And we're not even getting into game theoretic attacks here or any other, you know, uh, very, very crazy type of things that can happen, which I'm sure you are spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, I don't necessarily want to get into it here because it's probably too deep, but I'm struck at all the complexity that is under the scenes here.
1: Yeah, so in, in a way, um, you know, what the product of Ethereum is, is secure block space. And so my job is just security all the way down. Um and we have a whole roadmap of security upgrades coming after the merge. So at one point, we need to upgrade our cryptography to be post-quantum. Another uh, relatively recent threat is so-called meV maximal yeah. extractable value. Um, and this this is a bit of a threat because it messes around with the economics that you've tried to bake in, bake in. Um, so really, we have two tools when we're building these these blockchains. We have cryptography. And we have the economics and really what we want to do is minimize the economics because that's a more mushy part and we want to focus on the cryptography which is like the super strong mathematical foundations yeah um but it turns out that the the economic aspect is necessary um, and can be in some ways um attacked you mentioned mev as a potential new threat
0: to the economics right well that's one that emerged relatively recently And again, it's a threat to the economics you're baking into the system. Maybe it would be a good time to transition and talk about like, what does the process look like? Um, And so maybe help me understand like the history of the mood proof of stake. There's been many different iterations, but if you could trace out quickly the, like what you started with and then how it evolved and where we're at today.
1: Right, so there's been quite a bit of uh, evolution in in the design. Um, And every time we evolved, we kind of incrementally improved and these changes compound on each other. So I really do think that the the delta between what we had initially and where we're at now is you know orders of magnitude. So, one of, where we we started um, in in 2017 was this idea that we could have a finality gadget um, as a small contract. The idea of a finality gadget is to provide what's called economic finality. It's this idea that you can have the validators produce a block which is so-called final. And what does it mean to be final? It means that if there's two inconsistent final blocks, then we have the kind of the mathematical guarantee that at least one third of the validators will get slashed. If the blockchain were to be reverted and history were to be rewritten around this finalized block, then the penalty for rewriting the blockchain would be extremely large. And the threshold for uh, having a finalized block is two-thirds. So imagine that you have finalized block A with two-thirds saying it's finalized, and then another inconsistent block B, which another two-thirds say is, is finalized. Well, there must be one-third that is kind of saying that both are finalized, and these one-third that are kind of voting inconsistently are going to get slashed. Great, okay. So that's a finality gadget. Awesome. <laughs> Go back to the history now. 2017, what's going on? <laughs> There's kind of many downsides with, with, with this design. One of the downsides is that, um, you had to pay gas, right? And so, um, you when mean that, the validators have to pay gas, the people who are putting the rubber stamp on the blockchain. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So every That's time, you know, we have a, a gas spike, then it might not be, um, incentive aligned for the validators to, 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 to start finalizing. And then we might lose finality. So this is, this is a bad thing. It messes the economics up quite significantly. Okay. I can see this. Yeah. Another big downside is that, um, because of the cost of verifying signatures, we were limited in the number of validators that we could have um, supported by the smart contract. And what that meant as a consequence is that in order to become a validator, you needed 1,500 ETH, which back then was not a large amount of, you know, US-denominated amount, but nowadays is a a massive amount. And so by having a proof-of-stake chain, which is completely written from scratch, we've been able to bring that down to only 32 ETH. To, to become a validator.
0: So sorry, we created a brand new chain? Yeah, called yep. the beacon chain. The beacon chain, okay, so now we have a brand new chain totally separate from the, the existing proof of work chain, Yeah, and it exists solely to have this rubber stamp process on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm simplifying things here, of course, but yes.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in, 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 the, in the roadmap, it actually serves um, to do something else, which is to unlock so-called sharding so this is kind of not a security upgrade, it's more of a, a feature upgrade where we have more throughput uh, in, in the system. And this is a, a, another problem with the initial design is that we basically had we had two teams working on, on two separate things. One was the finality gadget and the other one was to unlock sharding. And both involved putting down ETH as collateral and both involved getting ETH rewards. Hmm. And here, um, basically two parts of consensus would be competing with, with each other. So really we have kind of this three-way competition between the application layer and two parts of consensus and things were not very incentive aligned. So instead we have this new standalone beacon chain which can basically handle everything. It has a unified um, system to deposit as a, as a validator and a unified reward system. Okay, so this is a lot. Um, I wanna see if I can sp- simplify it a little bit here.
0: My picture, by the way, on initially, if you could roll back the clock to 2017 or so, and, and you think about, oh, Ethereum's path to proof of stake, well, it's kind of like you got this car that's running 100 miles an hour down the freeway and it's running on proof of work. The engine runs a certain way. And the switch to proof of stake basically means taking out the engine while it's going 100 miles an hour and swapping in a brand new engine, which we can kind of all conceptually recognize as that's a challenging process, right? Well, fraught with a lot of risks. And so some of the things you're talking about have led led the Ethereum foundation To basically propose hey let's not swap out the engine on a moving
1: car let's make a new car let's rebuild the car well actually what we're doing is we're keeping the car and we're adding a second engine so imagine that you have a diesel engine and you have an electric engine so we have now a single car with with two engines but the the wheels are connected to the diesel engine now but what we can do with these two engines running in parallel is that we can basically test the electric engine, make sure that it is, it's working properly, and kind of ramp up its, its its power and its security. And then once we're really confident in the electric engine, we connect it to the wheels, disconnect the wheels from the diesel engine, mm-hmm. and we can just deprecate and remove it. A them. much easier switch. Got it. So I wanted to go back to one thing, though, right? Could you explain briefly what sharding is? So the idea of sharding is to try and have more scale at the consensus layer, more throughput. Um, and it turns out that um, it suffices to have more throughput on what's so-called data availability. So having more consensus over, over, over data. Um, and so that means that um, people who uh, wanted to download a piece of data had the option to go download that piece of data um when it was made available as as a block on, on on Ethereum. And so that that fundamental new resource data can then be consumed um, by so-called rollups to go basically um, increase the, the the throughput of Ethereum. So right now the throughput of Ethereum is roughly ten transactions a second. Rollups give us a hundred x increase over that to a thousand mm-hmm. transactions a second. and then sharding increases the the resource that rollups consume, namely data, by another 100x. So we get to roughly 100,000 transactions a second.
0: Okay, a lot to unpack here. But the, the the common conception around sharding is that you take a block or take a blockchain and you split it up into many different pieces and each piece can run independently. And each piece can basically have its own max capacity, right? And then you somehow string them all together to work in unison and in concert and there's going to be some measure tradeoffs here and there, but it's basically a way to massively increase the scale on Ethereum. The question I have to you is is more of a practical one. And it's this end state where we have proof of stake, you know, an electric engine and it's running sharding. And so, you know, really fancy scaling applications. Is, is the scaling basically coming through a large number of individual rollups, And that's kind of the end state of Ethereum is a bunch of roll ups are, are running and then they all kind of migrate down to the base chain somehow.
1: Right. So the the idea of rollups is that you make much better use of the resources that the blockchain provides. The blockchain provides basically two resources. One is this data availability, basically this idea that if uh, you have the transaction data in a block, everyone can see that transaction data. And the other resource is execution, is the interpretation of that data. Um, And it it turns out that from a, a, a cost standpoint, most of the cost is execution and so the idea the very clever idea of rollup is is let's try and do the execution off chain Mm -hmm. it's this mathematical proof that all the execution happened correctly um off chain and you have the succinct proof that it um that you put on chain and you only have to pay for the verification of this very succinct proof yeah, I mean, it's funny because we just, just earlier I mentioned you have to be an expert in so many
0: different things to, to really understand. crypto. So now I got to throw in zero knowledge proofs into the mix and <laughs> data availability problems and all this stuff. It, honestly, it, it's why it's a little bit daunting, I think, for people to really understand what's going on because there's so many complex machinery behind the scenes. Um, let's, let's see if we can step back a little bit here, right? So <clears throat> we basically painted a picture of the end state of Ethereum. It's a uh, proof of stake system, it's got a finality gadget, the rubber stamp that's economically secure, and it's got the sharding ecosystem that massively increases scalability.
1: Where are we today in that process? Right. So um we we don't have sharding, but one of the the, the benefits of proof of stake is that it lays the foundation for sharding. So we're at a point where um we have these two engines running in parallel, and very, very soon we'll be connecting the wheels to the proof of stake system, the electric engine, and we'll be deprecating the, 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 the proof of work uh, engine. V- very soon, do we have any actual timelines? So we don't have like official concrete timelines, um, but it looks like all the stars are aligning. So we're at a point where we've been able to do a, a lot of testing um, and all the clients have implemented the spec, which has been you know s- solidified and is now frozen. Um, we also have very good client diversity, which kind of gives us this assurance that if at least one if mm-hmm. one of the clients goes down, then we're, we're, we're still good. And another very interesting thing is that we have this coordination point, this so-called shelling point around what's called the difficulty bomb. So it turns out that with proof of work, um, the, the block times increase exponentially. Um, and that's kind of a forcing function to do upgrades on Ethereum. And that was... So, so just to be clear here, this difficulty bomb mm-hmm. was sort of a grenade that
0: we ourselves put in the road, yes. right? We, we put it, you know, far ahead of the road. And we said, look, the Ethereum spec today, the clients today recognize that at this date in the future, it's gonna be much harder to mine an Ethereum block on proof of work. And it's gonna get exponentially harder. And that's the difficulty bomb, essentially putting a, a self-imposed deadline to actually turn off proof of work and turn on proof of stake. So when is that difficulty bomb today scheduled to hit?
1: Well, um what we're predicting will happen is that around the end of August block times will be around 20 seconds. And I think that's roughly the the maximum that the Ethereum ecosystem can 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 handle. So if we are going to merge before the difficulty bomb and it seems like the community is aligned around trying to do that, um then August end of August would be the the, the last time to do that. Um and I don't think we'll be ready before August. So it looks like maybe August is um, a good time to merge. So maybe August, yeah, but we probably don't want to put down
0: firm, firm guarantees here, but maybe August, okay. <laughs> That's an exciting moment. So let's, let's trace through what happens, right? We switch. What's the day-to-day difference for people using Ethereum?
1: So the amazing thing is that for the developers, there's almost no difference. You know, you're still driving your car and the, the transition is, is, is seamless. One of the differences is that the block times will be regular. So we have these so-called 12-second slots um, as opposed to variable block times. Um, and we've slightly reduced the, the the slot time to 12 seconds as opposed to 13 seconds right now uh, on, on, on proof of work. And that's that's the, the, the
0: main difference. Okay, so it's really no difference at all for developers, no difference at all for end users. Blocks will still come just as you expect. It's just that the engine that produces those blocks has changed.
1: Right, it's much more secure And it's much more efficient.
0: Yep. And again, regular interval block times, and we get all the
1: benefits proof of stake that we talked about. And there's also this one massive consequence from a monetary standpoint. So if you look at the supply of ETH, um, there's kind of two things that affect it. One is the so-called issuance, which is the amount of ETH that's produced every single day. And as we said, that's going to reduce by 10x. There's another interesting aspect to the supply of ETH, which is the burn. and we have basically this mechanism um, called EIP-1559, which burns most of the transaction fees, around 80% of the fees. And it turns out that um, we're burning on the order of 5,000 ETH every single day, but we'd only be issuing with proof of stake on the order of 1,500. It's a deficit, That's... quick math. Yep. And so we'll be in a position where when we merge, the supply will actually peak and start going down. Yeah, so, wow. uh,
0: so, so, And that's kind of an expected result. It's not guaranteed because the burn depends on how many transactions are running through the Ethereum network, the amount of gas people are willing to pay to get their transactions mined. But we expect the throughput, at least when we switch over the engine, the throughput on Ethereum doesn't necessarily change. We still have on the order of what, 10 transactions a second that Ethereum handles. Mm-hmm. And so we expect that the overall fee market for Ethereum transactions, the amount of gas people are willing to pay to get their transactions mined, isn't necessarily going to change at all. And so we look at what's being burned today through EIP 1559. It's, as you say, about 5,000 ether a day. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot, by the way. <laughs> and and yet suddenly we're only issuing 1,500 new ether to the validators. So that means, click math, 3,500 ether on average burned every day. Suddenly Ethereum becomes potentially deflationary. Correct. Yeah. Okay. A lot of a lot of potential implications behind that statement. Yeah. Uh, we'll leave We'll leave it to the audience to, to, to determine what that does to the market price of Ethereum or anything like that. Um, but this is, I think, one of the, the sneaky things that people understood about this shift, is that it changes the economics behind Ethereum in
1: potentially a very meaningful way. Yes, absolutely. Um, and there's kind of other consequences um, around cell pressure, for example. So when a miner receives issuance, they have to sell the vast majority of their of their insurance to cover for the electricity costs and the hardware costs. They're
0: still running their miners, they're still paying for the, for the hash rates. They're still, by the way, still have to operate some some you
1: know warehouse somewhere to handle all the miners, a lot of opex and all that. Exactly. Whereas when you're a validator, um one of your main costs as a validator is actually income taxes. So you have, let's say, in most jurisdictions, 50%. You know, you have to sell roughly fifty of, percent of of your ETH as opposed to let's say ninety percent or ninety-five percent. Hmm, okay, okay.
0: Yeah, so you still have some burden obviously, but it again there might be impacts to the to the supply side as well. Yeah. Well, this is this is fascinating because there's again so many different uh <laughs> potential second order effects
1: behind this switch. Right. I mean another interesting thing is that um people are incentive- incentivized to become a, a validator because there's issuance, we're rewarding them with this, as you said, 1,500 ETH every single day. But after the merge, there's going to be a second incentive for validators. And that's gonna be the part of the transaction fees, which are not burnt, the 20%, which is not burnt. And that's gonna roughly double the APR at merge. So right now we're around 4% and that will jump to 8%. And so- Why does that get doubled? Well, because the 20% of ETH that's not burnt, it roughly matches the the issuance, so we have roughly 1,500 ETH, which is not oh, burnt. Oh, right.
0: After we move the engine over, <laughs> suddenly right. all the transaction fees also go to all the validators. And that ends up being a pretty substantial part of the pie because Ethereum's hey, a very valuable, very well-used blockchain.
1: Right. And so what, what um, what's it, that's going to have as an impact is that more people are going to come in as validators, and that's going to kind of reduce the velocity of, of money of, of, of ETH. Yeah. This is, uh, I mean, if you want
0: to write a bull case for Ethereum, this is a pretty strong bull case. Now, none, what, what this is not impacting though, it's not impacting the developer's rationale to build on Ethereum. Ethereum already has a huge ecosystem. It's already got all the tooling, all the developers for all the users, so many reasons to build on Ethereum. But it, this doesn't necessarily impact any of that. What might impact that, again, is this idea of sharding and increasing the scalability of Ethereum. Because the, idea, the utopian idea is, oh my gosh, we have a blockchain that is economically secure, can handle hundreds of thousands of transactions every minute or every second or what have you. And uh, developers can then launch you know, consumer-grade mass market retail applications that can handle that level of scale. And all of the economics behind it are powered by this very powerful proof-of-stake mechanism. That's a very powerful bull case, but I just want to point out that this specific shift to proof of stake, at least the first part of this, doesn't impact the developer community building on Ethereum.
1: Well, I think it does impact it a little bit because if we if we step back, right, the product that's being hmm. produced is getting exponentially better is secure block hmm. space, and the security is drastically improving. And not only is it improving in the short term, but it's being made sustainable for for the very, very long term. If you contrast that, for example, to Bitcoin, where with every halving the security degrades and it's unclear whether the Bitcoin security will be sustainable long term. Here, we have a very high grade security for decades and decades to come. I mean,
0: maybe to end it, uh, a scale of one to 10, where's your bullishness on Ethereum today? Like how excited are you for Ethereum? Based, Based on the previous benchmark would be as excited as you've ever been in the past. That's a 10. And zero is obviously as, as bearish as you've ever been in the past. Where are you at today on, on your own personal scale?
1: Um, I'm 11. I'm Woo!
0: more bullish than I've ever been. <laughs> wow. I mean, honestly, talking about this today with you, I can understand why. And and there's some magic in the air when like big upgrades are about to happen and you've been working on them for years and years. You can see the end in sight, the hills, just right there. And as you say, the economic impacts to all of this, the security impacts to all of this, massive upgrade for Ethereum and I think we're all just tickled pink about it.
1: <laughs> and I think right now the the roadmap has never been so clear. I think we have um, you know all these upgrades for security but we also have like this very clear roadmap around scalability. I mentioned the rollups giving 100x and we also have sharding providing another 100x but we have another 100x that will bring us to 10 million transactions a second through something called Nielsen's law. So, it turn- so, Nielsen's law says that basically um, consumer bandwidth increases 50% every year. And there's reasons to believe that this trend will continue for another decade. And if you compound these, this 50% growth over a decade, that's roughly another kind of 50 to 100x. And the reason that um, bandwidth is so fundamental to consensus is that all the other computational uh, bottlenecks that you could have, for example, storage, Disk IO, CPU time, these can be engineered away. These are not real bottlenecks. The only fundamental bottleneck to scalability long term is bandwidth. And bandwidth is the one thing hmm. that can just keep on going.
0: Wow. And so this is really going to
1: become potentially
0: the global solution for blockchain scalability and security. There's a roadmap that, that gets it there. Yeah. This has been fascinating. What, a, what an awesome conversation. I'm personally fired up about Ethereum. So <laughs> I've always been fired up about Ethereum, but even more fired up. So this is great. <laughs> well, there you have it. Hopefully that was enlightening around what's going on with the Ethereum ecosystem and when we might expect the merge from proof of work on proof of stake. Let me know what you thought. Did we answer all the questions? Are you still concerned or curious about different aspects? Tweet at me on Twitter, leave a comment on YouTube and also throw us a like and a follow. And catch us on the web at coinbase.com slash around the block. You will find all of our past episodes as well as long form research and a lot more. Until next week. See you then. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward looking statements made and are subject to
1: risks and uncertainties.